Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am in dialogue today with Dr. James Deem. James was Associate Professor of Communication Skills at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He is a published author of children's books and has published children's books since 1988. He has published 26 books. We are here today to discuss his new book, The Prisoners of Breen Donk, Personal Histories from a World War II Concentration Camp, published in New York by Houghton Mifflin, 2015. James, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. It's nice to be here with you. To begin, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholarship you would engage in as an adult? Uh, Well, I was uh, born and raised uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, My father worked for the railroad as a dispatcher, the B&O Railroad, and my mother was a housewife. I'm the oldest of four children, born in 1950. Um, I had a very normal childhood up until the age of about 10. Uh, I played outside a lot. I was interested in war games. Uh, I had plastic soldiers that I would set up in the backyard and and have mock battles. Um, But then um, around the time that I was 10, my mother, unbeknownst to basically her children and um, other members of the family uh, was diagnosed with uh, probably um, uh, inoperable colon cancer. And um, so she made some decisions at that point that had a profound effect on my life. Uh, About mm, 10 months before she died, Uh, I was 10 years old, she said, I'm going to take you to the movies. Um, My mother had never taken me to the movies before uh, by herself. And um, she was, she had had one operation to kind of alleviate some of the problems with the cancer. I did not know she had cancer. Um, And she said, we're going downtown on the bus. So we went downtown. She didn't tell me what we were going to see. We walked into the theater and um, it was um, the Diary of Anne Frank, the original movie um, and uh, with Millie Perkins. And um, I had no concept of anything about World War II except that it was soldiers fighting. So I knew nothing of the Holocaust. Um, and I sat there in the theater, completely unprepared, and was overwhelmed with new information, which also scared me greatly. And I had a very active imagination. So when I went home that day, and for a long time after that, I could imagine SS troops marching through my neighborhood. I developed a plan for how I would hide in my attic with the bookcase in front of the the door to the attic so that I couldn't be found. Um, And so uh, that was really uh, an important event in my young life. But equally important was the fact that um, after my mother died, uh, about 10 months later, so I, I was still about 10 years old. Um, we moved, we were going to, my father remarried and we were going to move to Arizona from West Virginia. And um, so he cleaned out the house and he 
put a lot of possessions out on the curb uh, for the garbage trucks to take. And fortunately, my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, was watching from a distance. She wasn't in communication with my father. And um, she was able to rescue some of the things uh, that he left on the curb after we drove away that night. And one of the things that he rescued was my baby book, which I had never seen. And my grandmother gave it to me. And in the baby book, um, it, um, it said... Um, you know, it, it had birthday cards for my first birthday and other things and how much I weighed. But it also had uh, a newspaper article that my mother had clipped and glued in. And it said, what happened on this date in history? And I was born on January 27th, 1950. January 27th is, in 1950, is the fifth anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And it was noted in this newspaper article. Now, when I saw the baby book, I'm not sure it had a profound effect on me at that particular moment because I was still very young. But as I grew up, I realized, oh, the diary of Anne Frank, uh, five years to the day that Auschwitz was liberated, it it ended up meaning something to me. And... Um, so that's kind of, you know, a, a long-winded version of telling you how um, I became interested in things related to World War II and the Holocaust specifically. What inspired you to write this particular book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, um, in 2010, um, my wife and her sister and I and a couple of friends uh, we're spending a week in Belgium and uh, it rains a lot in Belgium. And so one rainy day, we needed something to do indoors. And um, we found uh, information about a concentration camp, Brandonk. And um, I, I had at that point already written two books for teenagers, one on Kristallnacht and one on Auschwitz. Uh, so I was very familiar and, and I had also visited many, many concentration camps in Germany, Poland, and Austria. Uh, and I had never heard of Brindong before. And we all agreed this might be an interesting trip. So we drove there that morning and um, walked into the camp and I was just blown away. Uh, it was one of it was like walking into a nightmare um, because it's one of the best preserved camps, SS camps um, still in existence in Europe. And um, I had the audio guide that I was listening to, but because I'm an author, I, I wanted to know more and I'm always looking for another subject uh, to write about. And um, so I went into the, the gift shop afterwards and I said, oh, do you have any books uh, about Drain Dunk in English? Uh, no, they did not. And so when they told me they didn't, um, I thought, hmm, maybe this is a book that I would like to write. And so um, that's that was my inspiration. Um, it's like nothing available in English. Uh, and I thought, Maybe it's time for there to be a book in English. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, uh, I would like them to um, become familiar with Brain Dunk. Uh, I would like them to understand that um, it is kind of an ignored um, camp uh, that the SS established um, and uh, but it's equally as important as all the others, because uh, even though it was a small camp, uh, the people who were murdered there um, were just as important as anyone murdered at any of the larger camps anywhere else. And it's important to remember them and also to honor them and their place in history. Can you narrate 
the history and chronology of the Breendonk camp for us? When was it created? Why? Where is it located? How did its role evolve and change? Well, Breendonk is um, one of a number of forts that were built in the early 1900s to encircle Antwerp. So there are two rings of forts, and Brandonk is a fort in the outer ring. It was built, I think it was started in 1909, and it was completed in 1914, just a short time before World War I began. Um, the ring of forts uh, was uh, constructed to protect Antwerp from invasion um, from the Germans. And uh, it, at the time that it was built, it was the most advanced uh, kind of fort. But the problem is that the Germans um, had weapons that no one could foresee that made the fort kind of um, just, uh, it, it, it wasn't going to be uh, a, a useful fort anymore. So it was um, attacked at the beginning of World War I and bombarded by the Germans. Um, after World War I, it was basically used as a facility for storage by uh, the Belgian army. And then uh, at the beginning of World War II, um, because Brandonk is located in an ideal position on the main road between Brussels and Antwerp, halfway between, um, it became uh, kind of like the, the Belgian uh, military command headquarters at the beginning of World War II. And it was also um, attacked and capitulated uh, to the Germans uh, after a very short um, time. Uh, in May 1940. And within a few months, the Germans uh, took over the fort and uh, turned it into a prison camp um, that they called an Offenlager, uh, kind of like a reception camp. And this was going to be a camp where uh, political prisoners um, were going to, and, and other prisoners, even just criminal prisoners, were going to be held until they were either released or transported to other camps in the Nazi system. In, I, I, would, I would add that um, perhaps one of the reasons why Braindonk is so overlooked is that Altogether, during the war, there were only 3,600 prisoners or so. Uh, so it was a very, very small camp. And because it wasn't an official concentration camp, just an Offenlager, um, it's kind of overlooked for that reason. Um, but uh, about half of the prisoners did die, uh, were, I prefer to say were murdered. It doesn't matter whether they were starved, committed suicide, uh, were transported somewhere else and died of starvation there or exhaustion or whatever. They were murdered because of the system that the SS established. Um, so about half of the 3,600 prisoners um, ended up dead, um, but only 303 prisoners were murdered in the camp itself, and another 54 were executed elsewhere. Um, they were prisoners in Braindock and they were transported other places and executed in Belgium. So um, it, very small numbers, but that doesn't matter at all. It, the, the number of people who were prisoners there and who died there or in other camps is irrelevant. What kind of camp was Braindock? How does Breendonk exemplify or challenge the terms and terminologies that are used to characterize different camps, such as internment camp, concentration camp, transit camp, prison camp? Was well, Breendonk indeed a concentration camp in the genuine sense of a concentration camp, or does it challenge the, the definition of a concentration camp? Well, 
it it was not an extermination camp. It was not a death camp in the sense of there were there was no gas chamber uh, or anything like that. Even though when it was um, liberated by the Allies uh, in 1944, there was an article written about the gas chamber there, but there was no gas chamber. Um, it um, it really was a holding camp. It was a prison camp. And it end up it, it did end up being a transit camp because many of the prisoners were transported to other camps in the SS system. Some went to a, a another small camp in the Netherlands called Vught, and others were t- taken to Buch, uh, Buchenwald, uh, to uh, Mauthausen uh, in Austria. Um, Sachsenhausen, uh, they, were, they were deposited many places, and some some prisoners were actually released um, and free to free to leave. Some only to be rearrested again and brought back to Braindog. How many individuals were detained there? Where did they come from? Where were they deported to subsequently? Well, there there were 3,600 prisoners, give or take a few, because the records were lost or uh, destroyed. Um, it's impossible to know exactly how many, but for more or less, you could say about 3,600 prisoners. There may be a few hundred others who were there for a short time, but were never uh, registered at the camp. So I would say it's it's safe to say that there were under 4,000 prisoners total. There were never more than 660 prisoners there at a time. So, uh, and, and often there were many fewer prisoners there at a time. Um, the first year, I would say, was the most difficult in some sense, because that's when most of the prisoners uh, were Jews. Uh, at um, The largest number of Jews initially were, were prisoners during the first few months, uh, and uh, mostly arrested because they were Jewish and, and interned there. Um, in as as the camp progressed, there were Russian prisoners brought in. There were uh, political prisoners brought in. There were resistance members brought in. So there was a whole assortment of different people who were brought into the camp. Eventually, some would be sent to other camps, Buchenwald especially, uh, Mauthausen uh, is. Those, uh, Noyangama, those were three uh, major ones where prisoners were sent. And uh, many of the Jewish prisoners ended up being sent to uh, the official transit camp in Belgium, uh, which uh, is called Dosankasern. And Dosankasern is in a town called Mechela. And uh, it was uh, established, I believe, in 1942, uh, the camp there. It was an old army barracks, and um, many of the Jewish prisoners who were going to be transported to Auschwitz were sent to Dosankasern and then placed on a series of convoys um, to Auschwitz, where many were murdered upon arrival. Why is Breendonk considered an ignored camp? Why is less attention devoted to Breendonk than to other camps Jews were sent to during the Holocaust? Well, because it had a very low number of Jewish prisoners, like let's say out of 3,600 prisoners, maybe 600 were Jewish. And it's not definite exactly how many Jews were interned there because I would say a high proportion of the Jews who were sent to Brandonk were um, immigrants to Belgium who did not have proper paperwork. They were um, running away from uh, horrible situations in Germany or in Austria after Kristallnacht. Uh, so they they didn't go through the proper procedures to to be um, to have the proper paperwork to be in Belgium. Um, So if you were a Jew 
and an official Belgian resident, you were not, you, you never registered your religion. So there is no, um, you know, you didn't have to identify your religious beliefs uh, on any kind of registration document uh, for citizenship in Belgium. So it's not necessarily, you know, um, so if you look through the records of who the prisoners were, it doesn't identify them by religion at all. So it's only if the SS got involved and, um, identified them in that way that um that it became clear who was jewish and who was not uh and there are there are certain other documents that reveal this information but perhaps no more than 600 uh were jews out of the 3600 so it, it's a smaller proportion than at other camps where uh the overwhelming majority of the people in the camp were jewish what kinds of atrocities were perpetrated in Breendonk? What were the similarities or differences between atrocities committed in Breendonk vis-a-vis other concentration camps? Well, um, I would say it, it was very similar. This, the situation was um, overwhelming in terms of the, the brutality showed to the prisoners. Um, just the daily schedule alone, prisoners were up early, um, especially during uh, the first year or so, um, where there were very few toilets on site. There was no running water on site um, or very little running water on site. And um, and the guards um, were would beat prisoners. Uh, prisoners would be starved. Um, the Brandonk is surrounded by a moat, so that makes it very unusual. Um, and so anyone who um, would try to escape would have to find a way to get across the moat, which was not um, very feasible. Uh, and uh, some people. Uh, would be brutalized by guards in the moat. Um, some prisoners committed suicide in the moat. Um, and uh, the working conditions, almost all prisoners were forced to work on the site. Uh, because it was an old fort built to a certain specification, uh, it was covered in sand so that it would seem invisible to an invading army. So when the SS took over Brandonk, um, one the, the main uh, work that was involved there for the prisoners was the removal of sand from the fort. And so um, there were special um, kind of like iron uh, carts that the prisoners had to fill with rocks and sand and and move them on rails to the other side of the moat and dump them uh they had to um it was backbreaking work and it didn't matter what the weather was no matter how how hot or how cold or whether it was snowing or raining uh they had to work in that uh and even if they were sick so it was they were brutalized in all senses of the word, starved in, in every possible way. They were given very little to eat, especially, um, you know, it was just a few ounces of bread a day, some watery soup at lunchtime. And instead of coffee, they were given acorn coffee. Uh, it was just acorns stewed in hot water and they would get two cups of that in the morning and two cups of that in the evening. Uh, so uh, there were many cases of starvation at the camp because of um, the brutality of, of, of what the prisoners were given to eat. So I would say it, it was very similar. There was also a torture chamber uh, where especially uh, political prisoners or members of the resistance were taken into the torture chamber and um, they might be initially offered something. Oh, if you'd like something to eat, if you just tell us your information, um, they would, uh, you know, be tempted perhaps to reveal sources or, or, or contacts. Um, most chose not to. And so um, they might be burned with cigarettes. They would be 
um, handcuffed with their hands behind their back and the handcuff would be attached to a pulley, which would then raise their arms behind their back so that their shoulders would be dislocated. Um, they might be burned by an iron poker. Uh, it, the brutality was just uh, terrifying. And because it was a concrete fort, basically a long kind of H-shaped tunnel system more than anything else. If a prisoner was in the torture room uh, and was screaming, uh, the screams reverberated throughout the tunnels all the way into all of the prisoner rooms so that um, everyone could hear it. So that it, uh, it was a, a emotional torture as well. Can you say more about the forms of food that were consumed in Tonk? What forms of malnutrition were experienced? Well, um, for breakfast, um, they were given, uh, the prisoners were given two cups of acorn coffee and three and a half ounces of bread, which if, if you think of what a regular uh, grocery store loaf of bread, sliced bread is like today, that's about two and a half slices of bread. That was breakfast. So two and a half slices of bread and two cups of, of really disgustingly bitter acorn coffee. Um, lunch, two bowls of watery soup. Maybe there would be a few scraps of, of, of vegetable in there um, or a, 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 a tiny scrap of a piece of meat if you were very lucky. And at dinner, it would be four ounces of bread. So maybe the equivalent of three pieces of modern day bread and two more cups of acorn coffee. So basically you were getting very few calories considering that you were working at hard labor for eight hours a day. So um, it didn't take much for prisoners to lose a lot of weight in a very short amount of time. Uh, and um, some had to be hospitalized in, in a military hospital in Antwerp because they were close to death from starvation. Now, if, if a prisoner was very clever, and some were, uh, at lunch, um, they would in, they would be starving, of course, by then. But if they were clever, they would hold off um, from uh, getting their soup, or uh, they were allowed two bowls, at least the second bowl. If they were one of the last people to get a second bowl of soup, that meant that maybe some of the better stuff was at the bottom of the big pot of soup, and they would um, get get a little more sustenance that way. Um, occasionally, there might be a teaspoon of jam that the prisoners got. And eventually, um, because so many prisoners were starving during the first, let's say, um, nine months of brain dunk, um, uh, changes were made so that a little more food was given to the prisoners, but this varied depending on, there was always a conflict between the military government in Belgium and the SS who ran the camp. And the SS would not take orders from the military government. They only took it from the SS command in Berlin. And so the SS was always more cruel and vicious towards the prisoners. And if they could deprive them of food, they would do it. Sometimes prisoners would get food packages from uh, relatives. This was permitted at different points uh, over the time that Brandonk was an SS camp. And um, of course, uh, the SS guards would open the packages and if they saw something that looked good, uh, they would take it for themselves and eat it themselves. Um, but it, you know, prisoners were very, they liked, you know, they kind of tricked themselves into not feeling so terrible about the conditions they were living in. And what they would do is um, uh, take, take their bread, cut it into tiny little pieces and savor a tiny little piece at a time as if it was a huge chunk of bread. And some would even save their evening bread, some of their evening bread, so that they can have a little more in the morning. Um, it, it, you know, they um, 
they did all kinds of things so that they could cope mentally with the starvation that they faced at the camp. Can you discuss some of the surprising information about the camp that you discovered in your research? Well, um, one of, uh, if you ever go to Brain Bank, um, one of the first things you'll see as you walk in, um, it's the old kitchen room, is you'll see a picture of one of the prisoners uh, whose name is Israel Neumann. And Israel Neumann was um, uh, a Jewish prisoner who was one of the very first prisoners. Uh, he was arrested very early, October 1940. Uh, he uh, was a very short man, uh, and he was born in Poland. Um, and he was badly mistreated and murdered at the camp. Um, but you'll see a number of photographs of him as you tour the camp. And um, so he, he become, and there is a lot of information about him on the audio guide uh, when I went through back in 2010. And I was really moved by his story and the horrible treatment that he received. And so <clears throat> one of the surprising things was I thought, let me see what I can find out about him. And so um, I went on Ancestry.com, uh, mm. which, um, I, you know, I can't even explain why I did that, but I found him. And he and his family had immigrated to the United States um, in 1921. Uh, so, and his family lived in New York City uh, starting in 1921. Um, but he left after a few years and went back to uh, yeah. went back to Europe. And so I was I was really surprised that no one had ever discovered this information. He could have stayed in the US with his family for reasons that are, you know, you can't find an ancestry.com why he ended up going back to Europe. He tried to go back to his family again, uh, but he, he got waylaid at Ellis Island and was not permitted to go into the US uh, a second time. He was held in quarantine for, I think, three months before he was sent back to Europe and eventually found his way to Belgium. So, um, that was a surprising thing to be able to find out more about him and his family. Um, an, another surprising thing was the amount of uh, artwork that was uh, done at Braindong by one of one of the prisoners, Jacques Ox, uh, who was um, a professor of of art uh, in Liège, Belgium. And uh, he was asked by the commandant of the camp, uh, Philip Schmidt, to draw pictures. And um, Ox, who uh, had Jewish heritage, was co-opted by Schmidt to draw anti-Semitic uh, art uh, of the Jewish prisoners. Schmidt wanted these uh, drawings so that he could give them as gifts to his friends and colleagues. Um, but Ox uh, kind of surreptitiously also made a second um, copy of them and hid the copy away. He made other drawings that were not anti-Semitic at the camp, which kind of showed what the brutality was like. Um, and um, and these have all been collected in a book by Ox uh, after the war. And it gives you a really clear idea of what life was like at the camp. And, and to me, that was um, particularly surprising. And the third uh, really uh, surprising thing about the camp was that a propaganda photographer was brought in by the SS uh, in June 1941 to take photographs of non-Belgian prisoners, which primarily meant Jewish prisoners. And um, this 
propaganda photographer uh, took, I think it was 37 photos, um, which um, were lost until 1986 when uh, a Dutch photography collector found them in an auction, I think it was in Germany, and bought them and realized, he, he didn't know exactly what he was buying, but he, he knew it was from the war. And he, he realized that these were 37 photos taken of Braindonk and the prisoners from June 1941. And of course, this is where the photos of Israel Neumann uh, were made and other prisoners as well. And it gives you a really clear idea of what life was like in the camp uh, photographically, which is quite unusual because at almost every other concentration camp, any photographs that were ever taken were done surreptitiously by guards or maybe occasionally by a prisoner. But there, there are very few photographs taken during the time that a concentration camp was in operation. Um, so these these photos are, are quite surprising and unusual. Can you tell us about some of the victims of Breendonk? Can you share any personal stories? Well, um, it's, you know, the more uh, I researched, you know, the more attached I became to, to many of, of the prisoners. And uh, Israel Neumann was one of them because I was able to find out so much about him uh, and his family. Um, I kept on working on Ancestry.com to find out more what happened to his family. Um, and I, I eventually lost track of them because you can't find information after 1950 because U.S. doesn't release census records um, after 1950 for quite a while now. And uh, so that was uh, of interest to me. Perhaps um, one of the prisoners, well, one situation that I came across was there was um, a, a, a Belgian man who was Catholic, Louis, Louis de Hauer, and he was uh, arrested as a member of the resistance, and he ended up being executed at Brandon. His wife um, was Jewish. She was an immigrant from the Netherlands with her family. Both Louis and his wife, Charlotte, worked in the Diamond District in Antwerp, and they were both communists and members of the resistance. Um, the SS basically came, uh, well, the SIPOS day, that's kind of like the Gestapo in Belgium, came looking for Louis because they had heard that he was a member of the resistance. And when they couldn't find him because he had been tipped off. Um, they arrested his um, wife, Charlotte, and put her in prison. She was pregnant at the time, and um, no one knows what ended up happening to the baby. Uh, she was eventually sent to Auschwitz, where she was murdered. Um, and Louis was executed by firing squad at Braindonk, but they had a daughter um, before um, they were both arrested. And the daughter um, became a friend of mine uh, and shared information about her life. And um, it, it was actually um, one of the most uh, meaningful um, relationships that, that came out of uh, doing the research for the book. One of the things that happened uh, after I wrote the book and it was published was I was contacted by a woman whose grandfather was one of the capos at Braindonk. He was a Jewish capo uh, in at Braindonk. They called him Zugfuders. Uh, so he was a room leader and he was one of the most vicious of all. And um, she contacted me because she didn't know she had read the book, but she didn't know much about her grandfather. And she wondered also about her father because her father was in Belgium at the same time that uh, her grandfather was doing horrendous things at Braindonk. And she wondered if I had more information. 
And so I was able to give her more information about her father, who was not a good person either, but um, was not at Brain Dunk. Um, so um, perhaps one of the most heartbreaking prisoners for me, besides Israel Neumann, was um, a, a, a German Jew, uh, Jürgen Jakobsen, who um, was uh, arrested. Um, he had been, he was an electrician. He had moved, uh, he was in Danzig, moved to Germany after Kristallnacht. He came to Belgium hoping with his wife and his mother trying to uh, live a better life, a free life away from Nazism. Um, he became an electrician, he had his own business, and he um, was, um, he, he believed in the humanity of people. He wanted a common language for everyone. He was in an organization that was dedicated to having Esperanto become the common language of the world, but he was under suspicion by the Belgian government, the regular Belgian government. And so he was spied on um, when he went to the Esperanto meetings. Um, and at, at any rate, uh, as the war began, uh, he was arrested and sent to Braindonk and was horribly mistreated and um, was released finally, uh, after a short stay at the camp. But there is a before and after picture of what he looked like on his identity card before and one that was a photograph that was taken shortly after he was released. And you could just see uh, the terrible situation that um, he had lived through at the camp. And then eventually he was um, arrested again, along with his wife and his mother, and they were sent to Auschwitz and murdered there. Um, so it's, um, for me, it was heartbreaking because his heart was in the right place. He wanted so much uh, for world peace and harmony and good things. And, and this is what happened to him. And it's... Can you tell us about the perpetrators who ran the Green Donk camp? What became of them? Can you tell us about their fate? Well, you have uh, the commandant was uh, Philip Schmidt. Uh, he was commandant for quite a while. Um, and he um, he was married to a woman who uh, was from New Jersey, believe it or not. And um, uh, they lived uh, near the camp and um, he, he had a, a German shepherd uh, dog that he would use to attack the prisoners with. Uh, he was a horrible person um, and a very good Nazi. Uh, his uh, secondhand man was Arthur Prouse. Arthur Prouse uh, had more contact with the prisoners and was also perhaps the most cruel of the, of the SS at the camp. Um, Schmidt, after the war, was convicted of war crimes. He was the only Nazi who was executed in Belgium after the war. Uh, Prouse disappeared, uh, and no one knows what happened to him. Probably killed in Germany sometime during the, the last few days of the war. Um, the other perpetrators were often, um, well, some were Jewish prisoners who were promoted to be the room leaders, the Zugführers, uh, and um, they were often uh, particularly cruel uh, to, to the prisoners in their rooms, and some of them were executed after the war. Uh, some were imprisoned. Um, there were uh, Flemish uh, SS members, because when when the SS came into Belgium, they uh, wanted to have other members. And so m many Flemish men who were out of work and looking for something better uh, joined the SS and began to work at the camp. And they were um, uh, equally as cruel. 
um, and some of them were imprisoned after the war. Some of them uh, were executed as, a, as well after the war. Which specific studies of concentration camps in academic literature by other historians and Holocaust scholars had the greatest influence on you in developing this work? Which academic works on Belgian history during World War II and the Holocaust impacted you most? Were there any previous pieces of research on Brinzonk that you found helpful in the course of this study? Well, there, um, the main book about Brinzonk, um, as I began to do my research, was one uh, called Brinzonk, and it was written by um, Patrick Nefors, N-E-F-O-R-S. Uh, it's uh, it was written in Dutch, uh, and it's also translated in uh, into French. There is no English version of the book, and I would say it's kind of the um, the main source of information about Brain Dunk. It's a very thorough book. There are other books um, uh, about um, Belgium during. Uh, World War II, there's one entitled Belgium and the Holocaust, Jews, Belgians, Germans, uh, which was edited by Dan Mickman. Um, and I found that to be particularly helpful. Um, there, um, you know, the other books that were particularly useful to me were the diaries um, and memoirs, let's say, of uh, some of the prisoners who were at the camp. Interestingly enough, there were many well-educated people um, who were prisoners there, uh, newspaper editors, professors, um, lawyers, doctors, whatever. Um, and some of them did write accounts of what happened to them at the camp. One of the most, uh, let's see if I can find it here, is, um, is by a man named Jean-Amery, A-M-E-R-Y, who changed his name uh, after, um, after the war. Uh, he was uh, Hans Meyer, M-A-Y-E-R, but he did a little um, changing around of the letters of his last name. He didn't want to be associated with anything that sounded German after the war, and so he changed it to Amri. And he was tortured at the camp, and he wrote a book called At the Mine's Limits, Contemplations by a Survivor on Auschwitz and Its Realities. But in this book, he talks about what happened when he was tortured at Braindonk. And it's um, it, it's not a long section, um, but it's, it's um, a very valuable book. And unfortunately, Jean-Henri um, ended up committing suicide um, later in life. So, um, so the effects of torture can be long-lasting and devastating. Um, so, uh, What challenges did you face in researching this book? What adversities and frustrations did you have to deal with? How did you work around them? Well, um, of course, uh, I knew the, the first day that I was there in September 2010 that I wanted to write the book. And... Um, so I began to figure out how I might go about doing that. And I found out that there was an archive of documents at the camp itself. Um, but basically everything in the archive, of course, was either in Dutch, German, or French, um, almost nothing in English. And I have a... Uh, um, a minor in French in in college, um, but I had no expertise or, or any knowledge of, of Dutch. Um, and I did take one year of high school German, so I knew a little bit about German and how difficult it was. Um, so uh, as I began to do the research uh, eventually in the archives there, 
I had to rely on translation software so that I could translate um, documents and understand what they were saying. That was um, uh, a, a challenge, but it was a it was a good challenge um, uh, because I was able to um, find things that seemed to have escaped other people. One of the one of the things that I tried to do was in reading the memoirs that had been written by prisoners, I tried to piece them together into a coherent uh, chronology of what exactly happened in the camp. Um, and one of the challenges there was that because everything was done um, verbally at the camp, when uh, a prisoner who was writing an account would be remembering something, he was relying on his on on the speech that he heard, which would be maybe very different from what actually the name was. I mean, prisoners were were called by their number, um, and so if a prisoner told another prisoner, "Oh, my name is so and so." they may not have understood the name, they may be spelling it wrong, there may be, you know, they may have changed their name slightly. So I tried to read as many of the accounts as I could and connect them, even if it meant reading into it slightly like, oh, he's really talking about not Isaac, but Israel. Um, Israel Neumann, but maybe for some reason in his memory, he's thinking that this person is Isaac. So um, it, you know, the confusion between what was heard and what the real name was or the real event was, uh, was um, interesting to try, try to put together. So the languages, the connection of speech to writing, um, those were all uh, obstacles that I faced. And also trying to find, my book is filled with um, photographs and artwork that really give, I, I hope, a thorough picture of what life was like at the camp and at the other camps where prisoners were transported. Um, and that took um, a lot of work to find those um, photographs and uh, illustrations and then get cooperation from those sources asking, you know, would I be able to use these illustrations in my book? Um, so it, there was a lot of work that went into putting the whole book together. What challenges did you face in getting this book published? Well, um, I knew in, 2010 that I wanted to write the book. It took until 2012 to get permission from my publisher uh, to that they would give me a contract to write the book. I I couldn't write the book um, unless I had a contract because I knew it was going to take uh, a huge chunk of time, energy, and money to be able to. Um, to research the book. So um, I, I did lay some groundwork for the book before they, you know, the publisher finally agreed to let me write it. But um, it, uh, I, I really, you know, I think the initial reaction from my publisher was, well, why would anybody want to read about this place in Belgium? You know, it's like, well, because I want to read about this place in Belgium and I can't believe that someone else wouldn't want to read about it, too. And since there's no book in English on it, I think it would make sense. Um, the other thing that was um, kind of distressing to me about the book was in the initial stages, um, the book is um, the manuscript is finished and it goes out to uh, a design house that designs the book and decides what the font is and what the the headings will look like. And they sent back samples of what, um, what they had in mind for designing of the book. And so in every chapter, usually there is some kind of section break. So there should be some little iconography 
image that would show, well, that's where this section of text ends, and then we're going to begin another section. And so in the first draft of the design, all of the icons that indicate uh, a text break or a section break, um, they were all Nazi SS symbols. And I just was speechless that they would do that to my book. I said, we cannot have Nazi iconography in this book like this. It cannot happen. What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies? Well, when I wrote the book, um, I wasn't thinking that I was making any contribution to Holocaust studies. Um, it, uh, it was just a book that I wanted to write about Brain Donk and, and in English. Um, I can see now that the book has been published that it does provide information about what happened to Jewish prisoners at Braindonk, what happened when they were transported other places. Uh, even if it's a small number of, of Jewish prisoners, it, it names them as many as I could. It honors them. Um, they are remembered um, and that's important. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it, I guess it became my way of speaking for them and sharing what happened to them so that they were and could be remembered. Now, what's interesting is that, um, my wife and I, um, made many friends in Belgium on my many trips there um, uh, while I was working on the book. And um, we go back to Belgium uh, every year, a number of months each year. Uh, we rent an apartment in Antwerp, the same apartment. It's just a few streets away from where Israel Neumann lived with his wife. Um, when we go to the grocery store, we pass by the street where he lived. Um, we, um, we take the tram, we get off at the central station where he was arrested. Um, I, it's, uh, it's, uh, a very meaningful, um, continuation of the book in my life. And, um, it's, it's just, um, you know, so, I'm, I'm still living it, I guess I would say. So, and so if it's a contribution, I, I'm, I'm still trying to contribute in a sense, just in how I live my life. What are some directions for new and future research on Green Dog that you would encourage new students and scholars to pursue? What unanswered questions about Green Dog persist? What topics might you suggest to a newcomer in Holocaust studies such as a term peeper in a course on Holocaust history, what subject matter pertaining to Breendonk would you encourage a veteran in Holocaust studies to explore, such as a monograph? Well, I, um, I, I, you know, anyone who's interested in Holocaust studies and pursuing that at Breendonk, I mean, certainly there are perhaps 600 Jewish prisoners whose stories could be told or analyzed much more thoroughly than I did. Um, there's a lot of information that I was not able to publish uh, about them, um, just because there wasn't enough room in the book. Uh, and, you know, there are certainly family, you know, Many of the Jewish families were wiped out, and there were no surviving relatives of these families. Uh, but there were other Jewish prisoners who did have surviving family members, and it might be interesting to follow up on them. Um, 
uh, and and find out more information. That's something that uh, hasn't happened. Um, As we bring our dialogue to a close today, can you tell us about your current project? What are you working on now or next? Well, um, in a few weeks, I'll be 73 years old. And so um, I would really like to tell you that I have another book in progress, but um, the, uh, there are books that I want to write. Um, I, I am working on fiction at this point, um, but um, one of the books um, I wanted to write, but am really feeling overwhelmed and, and kind of unable to is uh, something that came up while I was working on the Brain Dog book. And, and I think this is a good ending to our conversation. So um, my wife is Jewish. I am not. Um, I'm an atheist. And, uh, uh, and my wife, for all practical purposes, is too. But uh, she, um, as I was working on Brain Dunk, she, she told me, and I, we had known this for a while, that she had some relatives uh, who uh, left... Um, Europe and moved to the UK and the US. That's how her family immigrated to the US um, a few generations ago. And, um, but she had heard that she had had relatives in Paris and um, she didn't know anything about them. So as I was doing research on Drandonk, I was able to go to Paris and find out about her relatives. And um, so she had um, uh, two relatives, um, a, a husband and wife, who uh, were related to, I, I believe it was her, her grandf uh, grandfather's brother. And um, they lived in Paris. He, he was from Russia initially. He um, fought in the, the revolution uh, and then moved to Paris um, to, to be free of, of that conflict. He was injured in the war. Um, he was a used clothing salesman uh, at the flea market. Uh, he had a stall there. And his wife was a furrier. She worked for a furrier company. Um, after the um, Germans uh, invaded France, um, they lived in the Marais. And um, when the Veldive happened, uh, the velodrome roundup, uh, uh, the men had kind of gotten notice, like, oh, this might be happening, and so maybe you don't want to be home this night well the the ss arrested um women instead and sent them to the velodrome and there were thousands of women and children who were Im imprisoned in the velodrome the bicycle indoor bicycle track and so um the wife edes uh brandman uh was sent on a transport to auschwitz she lived about um, a week there, I, I don't know if she was um, if she died of starvation or if she was sent to the gas chamber. It's impossible to find out. Her husband was found about a month later, and he was sent on a transport to Auschwitz um, from from Drancy with six hundred children. Uh, I think it was the first um, group of children that was sent to Auschwitz, and they were all gassed upon arrival so um it was chilling upsetting to find out that my wife's two relatives who lived in Paris at the time had been murdered in Auschwitz now um I wanted to write a book about them uh but I realized that there wouldn't be much information the interesting thing about them is that they lived on a street right around the corner from a restaurant where my it's one of our favorite restaurants in Paris. We've been to Paris many times, long before we knew about these relatives. It, maybe it's 50 yards away. We were drawn to this location. 
it's kind of interesting how things like that happen. So I thought maybe I would write a book about the Jews who lived on the street. I think there were 40 some Jews who were arrested and uh, a few survived, most did not. They were arrested at different times throughout the war. Um, and it's just a very small street in Paris. It's one block long. Um, and I started to do research on it. I accumulated a lot of information and I thought, I don't think I can write this book. If I was 20 years younger, I think I could do it, but I just feel too old to do it now. So if anyone listening to this would like to pursue this, I have some information that I'd be happy to give them. Um, it's, um, you know, uh, these kind of projects become immensely meaningful in ways that are hard to explain. And, um, you know, I, I hope that um, the little bit that I have done uh, can inspire someone to do their little bit too, so that we never forget and never repeat what has happened in the past. Thank you. Thank you for everything you have shared. Thank you for the erudition that you communicated to us in this dialogue and that is present and manifest in this remarkable and very important book. Okay. Thank you, Ari. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barblat. Today, I have been in touch with James Deem. He is a retired college professor who was associate professor of communication skills at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He has been a published author of children's books since 1988. He has published 26 books. Today, we have been discussing his recent book, The Prisoners of Breen Donk, Personal Histories from a World War II Concentration Camp, published in New York by Houghton Mifflin, 2015. Thank you.